Today's reading, Genesis 18, 16 through 33. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find fifty at Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Will let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his Lord way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So ends today's reading. Because right now we are gathered as your people in need of hearing from you. And so we confess to you at the outset that apart from the help of your Holy Spirit, we cannot hear. Apart from the power of your Holy Spirit, we will never obey. And without you fixing our eyes on Jesus and the work he is doing in us and through us, 
our obedience will not be glad or joyful. And so we pray that you would help us to understand your word. We pray that you would help us to obey your word and that our obedience would be marked by joy and gladness that shows the world that you are actually worth following and that you're good and not just right and that you're beautiful and not just true and that you're satisfying in every conceivable way. Do that today, I pray. Help me in my weakness to magnify Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you have, have seen the, uh, it's kind of a documentary drama, 2014 film, Selma? Anybody seen that? Yeah, a couple of you? Okay. Well, if you haven't seen it, it's a, it's a provoking film. It tells the story of the 1965 civil rights marches from Selma to Montgomery. And much of the film was naturally set in Alabama, but some of my favorite scenes are actually found in the White House, where you have this conversation between Dr. Martin Luther King and then-President Lyndon Johnson. And King is trying to convince Johnson why justice demands immediate protection for African-American voting rights. And Johnson politician is arguing with polite understanding that we need to prioritize the war on poverty. Now King knows how the political game works. He's savvy, right? And so he stages a series of marches designed to increase the public pressure on Johnson and on Congress to tackle racism first, immediately. And eventually the plan works. It works. Images of of racial violence from those marches are, are streamed across America on live TV, raising the visibility of the voting rights situation to the point where Johnson and Congress had to act. And on August 6th, 1965, do you realize that's 53 years ago tomorrow, right? Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. He signed it. The act didn't end racism, right? Let's not be ignorant as to believe that. But it forced the powers that be to do what was just and right. It forced them. It it persuaded them. it, It made people in charge, especially in the South, stop doing things that they wanted to do that were not right, and start doing things that were just and right that they didn't want to do. It, it forced them in some measure. Praise God, brothers and sisters, that he doesn't have to be forcibly persuaded to do what is just and right. God's not Governor Wallace. Okay? Why? Because he's a God of justice. He's a just God. Justice isn't just something God does or something that that periodically gets his attention after enough protest. Justice is who God is. It's part of his eternal character. He, He doesn't put it on occasionally like some sort of superpower. He is a God of justice. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect. 
for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Isaiah 5.16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Luke 18.7. And will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Friend, what's the condition of your faith this morning? Do you you believe, do you trust, do you know and rejoice beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is just and his justice will prevail, or do you doubt him? Do you doubt him? Because the entire focal point of this whole dialogue, this whole scene between Abraham and the Lord in the second half of Genesis 18 is all about the justice of God. It's what it's all about. And if the first half of this chapter, chapter 18, confirms that God can do anything, right? We saw that last week, that nothing is too hard for the Lord. You know what the second half does? The second half confirms that everything God does, all the things that are not too hard for him, is always just and right. Nothing's too hard for him, and everything he does is just and right. And all who know the smile of his favor follow him in doing what is just and right. That's the point. The Lord of heavens, a God of justice. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, remember that. The Lord of heaven is a God of justice. And and God helps us understand that main point in two ways in this section. Okay? Very simple outline this morning. Two ways he compels us to imitate and trust his justice. First, he teaches us that God requires justice. And second, that God practices justice. God requires justice. God practices justice. So let's look at point one. God requires justice. And here I'm going to focus on verses 16 to 19. Okay, now there, there are two things that we've already learned about Sodom. If you've been here for some time, we saw this back in Genesis 13. This is the city where Abraham's nephew Lot lived. And the men of Sodom were wicked. They were great sinners against the Lord. And and that means that sinning wasn't just something that they occasionally stumbled into or randomly did. Sinning, disobeying the law of the Lord, was what they delighted to do. It was what their life was dedicated to doing. The pattern of their life was not a pattern of obedience, though struggling with sin. That's called the Christian life. The pattern of their life was one of wholehearted devotion, no holds barred, I'm going to do what I want to do. That was Sodom. And because we know that already when we come to this chapter, when we read in verse 16 that the Lord and his angels looked down towards Sodom, you can just feel the tension rising. You can feel it. Something's going to happen. Look at verse 17, chapter 18. God starts speaking here. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. Okay, in case you didn't catch that, that is what we call a rhetorical question. (laughs) Really, okay? Because the obvious answer to that question is what? 
No, why not? Because in verse 20, he tells him exactly what he's going to do, right? He's going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But the reason the Lord tells Abraham what he's about to do, this judgment he's about to bring, has everything to do with the promise that he made Abraham back in Genesis 12. And that's a promise that the Lord repeats here in Genesis 18. Okay, so, so look at the end of verse 18. What's the promise? Abraham, verse 18, shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Okay, that, that's God's goal. That's God's mission. Here, Abraham, here's how it's going to go down, okay? Here's my purpose for your life. Check this out. I'm going to bless you, and by blessing you, every nation on earth is going to get blessed. That's the promise. That's God's mission, okay? Now, look at verse 19. Look at verse 19, because the first part of 19 tells us, friends, why the fulfillment of that promise for Abraham is guaranteed. Why is it guaranteed? Look at verse 19. How do we know for sure that Abraham will be blessed and will become a blessing? Verse 19, because the Lord says, I have chosen him. Or literally, because I know him. I know him. Okay, God, think about that. What's that tell us at a basic level? Okay, that tells us that the ground of Ab- the ultimate ground of Abraham's blessing, of the fulfillment of God's purpose for his life, had nothing to do with what Abraham was doing and had everything to do with what God had already done. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. God chose Abraham. Okay, God, God elected Abraham. He, he determined in the mystery of his sovereign will to set his affection on Abraham and turn a pagan idolater into a man who feared the Lord. God did that. For I know him. I have chosen him. And the divine power, listen, that chose Abraham is the same divine power that's guaranteeing the fulfillment of God's purpose for his life. That's the point. So friend, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, listening to me, if if God has opened your spiritual eyes to see your your need for a Savior, God's provision in Jesus and given you a heart to trust him and obey him, then know this, okay? The exact same thing is true when it comes to God's purpose for your life. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, Those whom God knows, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And in light of of all of that, in light of God's gracious choice to know you in in an eternally saving way, what does Paul conclude? Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. According to his purpose, all things. Take take heart in that fearful saint. Take heart in that. The fulfillment of God's good and perfect purpose for your life doesn't ultimately rest on you. It doesn't. It rests on him. 
But that word of comfort, and it is a word of comfort, that, that word of consolation, rightly understood, is not designed to make you passive in your relationship with the Lord. It's not designed to let you say, hey, you know what? This is awesome. I got myself a get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm just going to shift this Christian thing into neutral and home to heaven. No, not at all. Why not? Because of what God tells Abraham, look back at God's word in the middle of verse 19, okay? What's he tell him? He tells Abraham and all who join him in following the Lord how he's going to accomplish his sovereign purpose in our life. Here's the how, verse 19, for I have chosen him, that's what God's doing, that purpose, goal, Abraham may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Okay, I I want you to listen very carefully to me. I'm putting the Hardest work in this sermon up front when I know we're most awake, okay? So listen very carefully to me. God's work in Abraham's life is what guarantees the fulfillment of God's purposes for Abraham's life. God's work in Abraham guarantees the fulfillment of God's purposes for Abraham, but God is going to accomplish his work in Abraham through Abraham's work. See that? So much so that if Abraham fails to practice righteousness and justice and lead his family in doing the same, the Lord's purpose for his life will not come to pass. It's God's faithfulness that guarantees we will reach the finish line, but it is our obedience that is the means through which God will show himself faithful. Pay very careful attention to what the Lord says at the end of that verse, back at verse 19. Abraham must command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So, question for you. Is God sovereign in bringing his saving purposes to pass in Abraham's life or is Abraham responsible? Yes! (laughs) That's right, Josh, preacher man. The answer is yes. It's yes. Why? Because it's the Lord's work in Abraham that ultimately guarantees the success of the Lord's plan for Abraham, but it's the Lord who chose to accomplish his work through Abraham's work. Abraham has to teach his family to keep the ways of the Lord, to to practice justice, to do righteousness. So we need to stop and think about what do those two words mean? Because those in Bible are not just a great big fill in the blank. Like, hey, whatever you all think righteousness and justice means, whatever sort of feels good and, you know, drinking fair trade coffee, whatever. Just insert that. No. (laughs) Okay? Doing righteousness means living in such a way that our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, they line up with what God says is right. That's righteousness. All right? That, That means that our thoughts reflect God's thoughts. And our feelings imitate God's feelings. And our actions follow God's actions. That's righteousness. What's justice? Well, it's similar, but it focuses our attention on the way we treat other people. If you would, it's it's kind of the horizontal expression of righteousness. Doing justice means treating them the way God wants them to be treated. Now, I mentioned this a minute ago. When the Lord instructs us to do justice, please hear this. 
He's not giving us a giant fill-in-the-blank into which you can just slip your favorite social cause. Okay, why do I, why do I mention that? Because there are all kinds of non-Christians out there who are all about justice. Right? I, if all I said was we should practice justice, we could fill this church. Last week, the devil is in the detail, right? What, what do we mean by that? More importantly, what does God mean by that, right? Because justice is too important in his kingdom for him to let us define it for ourselves and reduce it to voting for democratic socialist. It's too important. Okay, And so the Lord tells us on page after page of his holy word what he means by justice. And I love the way that DeYoung and Gilbert summarize what we find. If we read through God's word, listen to this. The Old Testament is passionate about doing justice. But, so honest, Christians haven't always given much thought to what the Bible means by that phrase. Doing justice is not the same as redistribution. Nor does it encompass everything a godly Israelite would do in obedience to Yahweh. Injustice refers to those who oppress, cheat, or make judicial decisions with partiality. Doing justice, then, implies fairness, decency, and honesty. And just as importantly, we see that a righteous person does more than simply refrain from evil. Here, this church, he positively seeks to help the weak, to give to the needy, and as he is able, to address situations of rank injustice. That's a mouthful, but that's a great description of what the Bible means when it talks about justice. So so what are we seeing here? What, what, What have we noticed in this dialogue between Abraham and the Lord, okay? In what way is God requiring justice? Well, just to review, the sovereign Lord of the universe is bringing his purposes to pass in Abraham's life. He's doing that. Blessing him, making him a blessing by requiring him to practice justice. To treat people fairly and, and decently and honestly without fraud or favoritism. To, to give generously and freely to the poor out of all that God had given to him. God's requiring that of Abraham. He's requiring justice. But catch this. That requirement is completely for Abraham's good. Completely for his good. Why do I say that? Because whenever God commands us to do something in the Bible, he's not just laying down arbitrary rules like some kind of power-hungry parent. Hey, guess what? New rule for Tuesday? Practice justice. No, it's not at all what he does. He's marking out the path of blessing in your life, friend. The path of blessing. His commands aren't burdensome. They're an infinitely precious gift. Why? Because through our obedience, King Jesus is bringing his good and perfect promises to pass. That's what God's doing. It's his work, Christian. But he's doing it through your work. Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is you alone who will finish this. No, because for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what God did in Abraham's life. Christian, that is what God is doing in your life right now, today. He's accomplishing his work 
through your work. And he requires justice as part of that. So, here's the critical question and the transition to point two. Follow me here. Because I was thinking about this all week. There are times when you're studying God's word that you're looking at a passage and it makes sense quickly. And then there are times, no matter how many degrees you have or how many other people you read, you're thinking, I just don't see it yet. But I think this is what's going on. So let me ask him to seek to answer this question. Follow me here. Why? I love whys. Why does Abraham need God to tell him and not hide from him the judgment he's about to bring on Sodom and Gomorrah in order for Abraham to practice righteousness and justice? Follow me? Why is it important that Almighty God reveal the judgment he's about to bring on Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham in order for Abraham to be able to practice righteousness and justice. Okay, think of it this way. What's the connection between the justice God requires in verses 18 and 19 and the judgment God foretells in verses 20 and 21? What's the connection? Well, I think it's simple, okay? If Abraham is going to persevere in following the Lord, he needs to know not only that God requires justice, but also that God practices justice. If he's going to follow the Lord in practicing righteousness and justice, he needs to know two things, not just one thing. He needs to know that God requires that of him. And second, he needs to know that God also practices righteousness and justice. Does that make sense? So point number two, God practices justice. He doesn't just require it, he practices it. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, Verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, verse 21, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether or literally made a complete end according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. What's that tell us? Well, friends, it tells us that God never requires something from us that he's not first willing to practice himself. I'm going to say that again. It tells us that God never requires something from you that God is not first and already practicing toward you. That's what it tells us. It tells us that God isn't a coach giving us tips from the sideline of our life. He's a king. He's a leader. He's our example. He's on the playing field. We're following him. He doesn't just teach justice. Hey, you, practice it, okay? I'm watching you. No, he displays justice. He does justice, which has at least three implications for the sins that we commit and the sins that are committed against us. So what are those? First, The sins we commit, the sins committed against us, because God practices justice, they are never silent. They're never silent. You can hide them from your parents by clearing your browser history. 
You, you can push them into the recesses of your mind with enough drugs and alcohol. You, you can do everything in your power to try to silence that voice of condemnation within and shame from without. You can try everything, friend, but you will not succeed. Why? Because every violation of God's perfect law, all the wrongs done by us, all the wrongs done to us, they cry out for justice before the throne of God. They cry, they talk, they speak. What does the Lord say in verse 20? Look back at his word. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. You know what that should tell you? That whenever you do something that is not just, whenever you sin, or whenever someone does something that is not just to you, whenever you sin against them, they sin against you, that cry always reaches the judge of all the earth and heaven. Every time. Never silent. Second, they're never silent. They're never generic. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, there's, there's no such thing as an inconsequential sin. Why? Because the moment you commit one sin, you become a what? Lawbreaker. The moment you commit one sin, the moment you break God's law, at one point, you become a lawbreaker, okay? So there's no such thing as an inconsequential sin. On the other hand, some sins are more serious than other sins. For real. We, we can easily forget this, okay? Not every sin under the old covenant got the death penalty. Every violation was serious, but, but not all violations were equally grave. Right? So, so there were different degrees of punishment for different sins. And, and we'll look more specifically at the sins Sodom was committing next Sunday. But for now, notice in verse 20 that the Lord simply says their sin is very grave. It's very grave. And that should tell you, friend, that neither the sins you commit nor the sins committed against you ever fall into some sort of generic sin box in the courtroom of heaven. They don't. God's knowledge is specific. Okay? He understands that some sins are uniquely painful. Both when you commit them to other people and when other people commit them to you. Sin is not generic in God's sight. He knows the full depth of what you have done and he knows the full depth of what has been done to you. His knowledge is specific. It's never generic your sin or other sin in his sight. So they're never silent. They're never generic. Third, they will be justly punished. Third implication of the fact that God practices justice. They'll be punished. Okay, so think about this with me. The justice of God is never capricious. God doesn't fly off the handle at people the way we do. There has not been one time in history, there will never be one time in history, even at the end of the age, where God loses his temper. Okay? Not one time. His judgments, as Derek Kidner says, are always well weighed and perfectly formed. 
Well weighed, perfectly formed. That, that's the whole point of verse 21. Look there. They're not driven by blind rage or emotional impulse. They're based on, his judgments are always based on, firsthand knowledge and careful observation. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, let's remember, God, the judge of all the earth, doesn't have to go down to Sodom in order to actually know what's going on. It's not like, you know, God is sort of working with a sin Google map thing and there's like a blackout zone. I wonder what's under that rock. No. He knows. So why did he go down? I mean, this is where you just, we need to read God's word slowly and, and think. So why did he do that? If he already knows, why would he do that? Friend, the reason he did that is because he wanted to show Abraham something. He wanted to remind Abraham of the perfection of his justice. He wants Abraham to understand that the Lord of heaven always knows. He knows. He knows all of it. Friend, if you are looking for a reason for why you need a Savior, Christian, if you are looking for a reason for why you should fear the Lord. If you have suffered grave injustice at the hand of somebody else who has sinned against you and are wondering, why in the world should I have anything to do with God anymore? Look at verse 21. Last three words. I will no. I know. I know. God, God knows. God knows every wrong that you have ever done. God knows every wrong that's ever been done to you. They're never silent. They're never generic. They will always be punished. Why? Because God's not just a God who requires justice. He's a God who practices justice. So why does Abraham need to know that? Remember, that was the question. Why does he need to know that? Well, he needs to know that. He needed God to tell him, hey, Abraham, look what I'm about to do. I'm a God who practices justice for at least two reasons, okay? Two reasons, very simply. First, because Abraham needed a warning. And I would argue, no less than you and I do. Okay, so what's the warning? All right, listen. If Abraham, no less than us, is going to persist, persevere in doing righteousness and justice, even when it's hard, then it really helps to remember that the consequences for not doing that are very serious. That helps. Okay? Young people, if your parents said to you, you need to be home by 11, but if you're not home by 11, nothing's going to happen. Be like, Okay, <laughs> home by two. You know, we are motivated by warnings. We are helped, we are aided in staying on the path of blessing by warnings of consequences if we don't. Think, think of it this way. God preserves us, his sovereign grace protects us through warnings. Through warnings. 
And verses 20 and 21 remind us, and may they remind you this morning, that in the kingdom of God, obedience is not optional. Okay, nobody gets to say to God, I think I'll do my own thing, thank you very much, and get away with it. Why not? Because there's not a Switzerland in the kingdom of God. That's why not. That there's no neutral territory. There's no space where you can say, you know, I'm not exactly like totally into the following God thing, but I'm, you know, I'm not t- like against them. I'm not raging against the machine. I, I'm just kind of a nice guy. Switzerland. Objective neutrality. Open-minded. In tune with spiritual things, but you know, not crazy. But not a hater. <laughs> that territory, friend, with all due respect, does not exist. It's a facade. Either you were in his kingdom and you are obeying the Lord by doing righteousness and justice or you are outside his kingdom and you are sinning against the Lord by not doing righteousness and justice. Okay? The former will not fail to be blessed. The latter will not fail to be punished, which is why Abraham's choice, will I practice righteousness and justice or will I not, could not be more important. So the first reason is a warning. God practices justice, that's a warning. But it's also a word of comfort. What's the comfort, okay? The reason the Lord didn't hide the coming judgment of Sodom, in part, is a word of comfort. How's that a word of comfort? Well, if Abraham, no less than us, is going to persevere in doing righteousness and justice, no matter the cost, no matter how hard it gets, you know what it really helps to remember? It really helps to remember not just that the consequences of not doing that are dire, but that the blessing for doing that is exceedingly great. God's warnings as they were, they push us. Don't go that way. Danger, warning. And God's promises of blessing, they pull us. Come this way. It's God. He's being pushed. He's being pulled. He's being warned. He's being comforted because he needs to know that the judge of all the earth will not fail to deliver, save, and reward the righteous. He won't fail to do that. It's a warning to the wicked. It's a comfort to the righteous. It's Especially, please hear this, in the midst of a fallen world where at least from my vantage point, more often than not, it sure looks like the righteous are faring no better than the wicked. It sure looks like the righteous suffer as much, if not more so, than the wicked, who could care less about God's commands. Are you following me with that? You ever felt that? Well, the whole point of Abraham's intercession for Sodom, for the righteous in Sodom, in verses 22 to 33, isn't, please hear this, that God needed to be cajoled or persuaded into being just. He didn't need that. Abraham isn't negotiating with God, like Dr. King with LBJ, to make God just. What's he doing? He's questioning God to test his justice. He's testing it. And understanding verse 25 is the key to getting this whole conversation. Okay, look at verse 25. Far be it from you, Abraham says to the Lord, to do such a thing. To what? To put the righteous to death with the wicked. 
so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Think about that. Okay, that that premise is exactly what Abraham is testing and pleading back to the Lord through his questions. In other words, God, you've made it very clear that you require justice from me. God, you've made it very clear in verses 20 and 21 that you practice justice, you will not fail to punish the wicked. But I have one more question for you, God, and it's still about your justice. Does that also mean that you will not fail to protect and uphold and deliver the righteous? That's what's going on here. Will I really fare any better than the wicked if I choose to make all the painful sacrifices necessary to do righteousness and do justice? Tell me, God. I'm convinced we wrestle with the exact same question today. So let me give you some examples. I know I'm not perfect, Lord. I struggle with sin like all your people do, but I did everything I could to honor you in the way I treated my wife. And she still left me. I've tried to honor you in the way that I spend my money. I've been generous even when it hurts. I've worked hard. I haven't been lazy. So why do the bills keep piling up and all my non-Christian coworkers just go to the Bahamas every four months? I've tried to honor you with my sexuality. Why does everyone else have a husband but me? I've tried to honor you by laying my life down for the church. So why did it blow up and hurt me in the process? Is that the thanks that I get? I tried to honor you this morning by by getting up early and, and reading your word and praying. And then what do you know, Lord? My car broke down two hours later. Did you notice that? It sure feels like the righteous fair like the wicked. And I think I must be some kind of cosmic exception to this whole, the judge of all the earth shall do right. What about the tsunami in Asia? Are you telling me, God, that out of 200,000 some people, not one of them was a Christian? Is that what you're saying? That sure seems like an example of the judge of all the earth putting the righteous to death with the wicked. Maybe this whole following Jesus thing is in vain. Friend, I don't pretend, I'm not about to pretend, that in one sermon or one word, I can answer all the questions you have about the practical outworking of the justice of Almighty God. But I will say that no matter what question you're asking about his justice, God has something to say to you. And it's the same relentless beat that constituted his reply to Abraham. It's what we need, friends. If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. I will not destroy it if I find 45. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. 
I will not do it if I find 30 there. For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. For, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. What, what is God saying to us? What is God screaming to us through every one of those answers? He's saying, Abraham, I am a God of justice, buddy. I do not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. The righteous will not be put to death with the wicked. The righteous will not fare as the wicked. And the judge of all the earth will always do what's right. That's what he's saying to him. And then look at verse 33. Look at 33. Then the Lord went on his way. I'm Abraham, I'm thinking we're not done yet. We're not done yet. The Lord replies again and again in a way that declares again and again that he's a God of justice, right? That's what he's doing. That much is crystal clear. But, but his replies end with an element of mystery. It ends without total clarity, at least from Abraham's perspective, as to exactly how the Lord will practice justice in Sodom. It's, it, I mean, what will happen if there's less than 10 righteous in the city? I mean, what's absolutely clear from the exchange, right, is that God is a God of impeccable justice. But what's not entirely clear, again from Abraham's perspective, is how is God exactly going to work out and practice justice in this situation? Does that feel familiar to you? It does to me. God gave Abraham everything he needed in order to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Yahweh would not fail to practice justice. He gave him all he needed in order to know that God is just and that he could trust that God is just. But he did not give him all the details of exactly how divine justice would come to pass. And in so doing, you know what he did? He lovingly forced Abraham to keep walking by faith. He forced him to do that. He made him walk by faith. He made known his character. It was blindingly clear by the end of all those questions. Abraham, I am a God of justice. But he didn't make known all his ways. He made known his character. But he didn't explain all his ways. That's familiar. That's our life. But what does God do in Genesis 19? I'm going to cheat here. Because that text is for next week. But let's cheat together, okay? God finds less than 10 righteous men in the city. In fact, he only finds one. One. He finds Lot and his family, and the man isn't exactly a paradigm for doing righteousness and justice. We'll get to that. He finds one. So what does the Lord do? Well, he destroys the entire city, but immediately before he does that, he rescues Lot. Proving what? That your God, friend, will never sweep away one righteous 
with the wicked. That's what it proves. It proved to Abraham that God was more just, not less, than Abraham could ask or imagine. Do you see that? Abraham only got to ask down, test down, explore down. What if they're dead? He didn't know God's ways past that. But when God's ways came to pass, what did Abraham see to his utter amazement that, Lord, you are more just than I could ever ask or imagine. Friend, that's who God is for you. He's more just, not less, than you could ever ask or imagine, even when your life makes no sense. More just. So, when it comes to understanding and trusting the justice of God in situations that don't make sense to our feeble minds. Let me conclude by reminding us that we have something Abraham did not have. We have something. What's that? We, we have a, a wellspring for our faith that Abraham did not have, that, that sustains and nurtures our confidence that, yes, Lord, you are a God who practices justice even when my life makes no sense. You know what that wellspring is? It's called an empty tomb. An empty tomb, okay? You want proof that in the midst of the greatest justice, injustice imaginable, justice will prevail? You want evidence that righteousness will not fail to be rewarded? You want a guarantee that the situation in your life that right now makes no sense and leaves you wondering, will God be just, will ultimately abound to the praise of his glory, even if you have to wait for heaven to see it? Behold the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Behold the tomb, Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What's that? Rank injustice completely under the sovereign, mysterious hand of God. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why not, friend? Why is it not possible? Maybe you've never thought about this, but here's the answer. It's because the judge of all the earth always does what is just. That's why, okay? The infinite worth of Jesus' sacrifice so exceeded the immeasurable depth of our sin such that the very justice of God the Father required him to raise his son from the tomb. That's what's going on. So he raised him up. He vindicated his justice. And by the way, if you have been united to Jesus Christ by faith such that his righteousness is now your righteousness, guess what God will most surely do for you one day? He's going to raise you up and vindicate the justice of your cause in the eyes of the entire universe. Christ proves that's what he's going to do. And so we say with Paul, amidst grave injustice in our life, indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us 
Again, Christian, what does that mean for you? That means that obeying God is never something you will do in vain. Never, ever. He will vindicate you. He will punish the wicked. He will reward the righteous. The judge of all the earth will always do what is just. That does not mean the absence of trouble. That does not mean we'll understand the full picture. That does not mean we'll receive all the rewards in this life. It does mean that those who wait upon the Lord will never be put to shame. Ever. Psalm 37, 5. So, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, friend. And he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. I'll remind you that that waiting to see the fulfillment of the God who practices justice is not passive resignation. It's meant to make you active and fervent and faithful in prayer, friend. He will be just. You are not obeying him in vain. His justice will prevail. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray right now that you would work in our hearts as we sing this song, as we share the Lord's Supper, a great and mighty confidence that you are a God of justice. And that that doesn't just mean you require it from us or you will surely punish the wicked. It means you will uphold and protect and deliver and save and reward and vindicate those who are faithful to follow you. And so we cry out to you for help to do that. When life makes sense, when life especially doesn't, you are our rock and our redeemer. You are the judge of all the earth. And every time the actions of people around us scream otherwise, we thank you and we bless you as your people that that never changes who you are. Help us to trust you. We love you. Amen.